right, everyone, welcome to Bible study tonight. Glad you're here. We're continuing our study through the book of Acts. Of course, we're studying it because we want to relive it, and I believe we are reliving it. We're seeing a lot of what happened in the book of Acts played out in our culture today and in our church today. And so we are reading the instruction manual. We're seeing how it's done. We're seeing how the early church did it, how they responded, and how we can respond in our day. And so I'm excited about that. We're studying the book of Acts chapter 12 this evening. So if you haven't already, you can turn there. As you're turning there, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. It is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It is our food. It's our milk. It's our bread. It's our meat. It sustains us. And so I pray, God, that you would feed us tonight by your word. I also pray that you would transform us by your word, transform our mind, conform us into the image of your son. And Lord, we pray that we would see uh, just where in the world the gospel is going as we read this book of Acts tonight, as we study it, and as we compare it to our own day and age. And so, Holy Spirit, lead and guide us into all truth. We pray it in your name. Amen. All right, here we are. Let's dive right in. Acts chapter 12, starting at verse 1. Actually, no. Before we dive in, let's read the summary on your handout. So Acts chapter 12 tells the story of the death of James, the son of Zebedee, the imprisonment and miraculous escape of Peter from prison, and the death of Herod Agrippa I. It also tells the story or recounts the early ministry of Barnabas and Paul of Tarsus. The chapter begins with the first death of an apostle. Remember, Jesus promised that all of his apostles would suffer a martyr's death. Um, and so here's the first one the apostle James, and it ends with the death of a Roman territorial king. So these two deaths bookend the chapter or the chapter 12 of the book of Acts. Of course, persecution. Uh, strikes through Herod Agrippa the first persecution strikes the church uh, the grandson of Herod the Great and Peter in prison miraculously delivered and it's called or the death of Herod is actually called a judgment from God all right so now let's dive in Acts chapter 12 starting at verse 1 about that time Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. So here is the persecution that strikes the church through the hand of Herod. Now, I've been meaning to do this for a couple of weeks now. I finally got around to printing it off because a number of you have been asking how much time has passed uh, in these chapters? Is it happening quickly or is it happening over a long period of time? So. When I read this afternoon the words about that time, I was reminded, look up the book of Acts timeline. And so quickly, let's, let's discover how much time has passed since Jesus ascended into heaven back in Acts chapter 1. So if we assume that Jesus ascended into heaven around 30 AD, 
So you can go from 30 to 33. We know he was 33 years old. We just don't know exactly when they started counting time by him, whether he was three years old when, when Herod wanted to kill all the baby boys of, a, of around that age, or if it was from his birth. So let's just assume it's 30 AD. That's the broadest consensus of his ascension date. So from 30 AD, we have, um, or in that one year, that first year, we have Matthias being chosen to replace Judas. We have the arrival of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, Peter healing and preaching, Peter and John arrested and released, uh, the believers sharing all things, having all things in common. That's all happening in the first year. Uh, the death of Ananias and Sapphira happens in that first year, 30 AD. The apostles continue to preach and heal people. Uh, after about a year, that's when uh, Stephen's death, so the first martyr of the church, Stephen, that's when his death takes place, about a year after the day of Pentecost. And about a year after the day of Pentecost as well, that's when we read of Saul of Tarsus persecuting the church. In 31 AD, that's when Philip goes to Samaria, you'll remember, and he encounters Simon the sorcerer and the Ethiopian eunuch. So that's all happening within the first year or two of the church. Saul's conversion takes place about three years later, in AD 34. Uh, now getting up to Acts chapter 9, which we've studied much, or, or we've studied recently, when uh, Peter has that vision of the sheet uh, descending from heaven and all the animals on it, and the Lord tells him to kill and eat. That's happening at around uh, 37 AD, so six or seven years after the day of Pentecost. Saul is converted in, um, oh yeah, before then, and now last week in Acts chapter 11, we read about Barnabas being sent to Antioch which was the epicenter for the Gentile church. Remember, Jerusalem was the epicenter for the Jewish church or those who converted from Judaism to Christianity, those who were Jews by birth who converted, who were saved. Their epicenter was Jerusalem. Antioch becomes the epicenter for the Gentile church. And so that's happening in 42 AD. So you're looking at a dozen years after the day of Pentecost. So a lot of time has gone by. And uh, yeah, Peter is led from prison by an angel, Acts chapter 12. Uh, that also happens in AD 42. So right now in Acts chapter 12, we're about 12 years after the day of Pentecost or 12 years after the ascension of Jesus. Clear? Good. All right, let's... Uh, dive in again, uh, verses 2 and 3. Let's read it. He, Herod the king, killed James, the brother of John, who was also known as the son of Zebedee, killed him with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread, uh, the days of um, Passover. Uh, James, the brother of John, is executed by Herod. 
and Peter is imprisoned, God, by his sovereign will and purpose, permits James to be executed, but allows his brother Peter to be delivered. Can we make sense of this? No. I mean, we know that James and John were some of the first called by Jesus to be his apostles. And James is the first apostle to die a martyr's death. Uh, the thing that sticks out to me the most here is that when Herod killed uh, James, he saw that it pleased the Jews. Herod was a people pleaser of the worst kind, willing to kill people to please people. And so he saw that it pleased them, and so he proceeded to arrest Peter, and I think he proceeded to arrest Peter to, uh, to put him on trial, to humiliate him, to uh, disgrace him, and then execute him as well. I think Herod wanted to make a show out of, um, I keep saying Peter, I meant to say uh, John. He arrested John. I think he wanted to make a show of this execution. I don't think he realized how pleasing it would be to the Jews, and so he was going to arrest them and maybe put him on trial like Jesus and order an execution and really gain the favor of the people. So I think, that's, um, I think that's why Herod did it. Now, I think we'll get some insight into, into why God allowed this to happen in just the next few verses. So in verse 4, when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him. Obviously, Herod knew that there was power attached to these apostles, these disciples of Jesus, um, not just four guards, but four squads of guards, four squads of soldiers uh, to guard John, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So remember I said uh, he was going to make a show of this? Uh, I, think, I think this is what was in it. I know his intention was to bring him before the people. I think it was so that he could make a show of it and gain more favor with, um, with the people of Israel, with the Jews. Now here, Dr. Luke refers to Passover, but again, this is uh, 12 years after the ascension of Jesus. So most of the Christians, if not all of the Christians, are calling this time Easter. But because he's talking about what's going on in, in Jerusalem and that the Jews were excited about this killing of James and this imprisonment of John, uh, he's referring to Passover here just to get a, give us some context as to why they were all together and how news would have spread about this execution and this imprisonment. All right, and then looking at verse 5, so Peter was kept in prison by earnest prayer for him, or sorry, but earnest prayer was made for him to God by the church. So, of course, um, Peter, okay, you're going to have to forgive me here. There's a bunch of names. I've got them all mixed up. You know, James, the brother of John, okay, but Peter is the one that's arrested, not John. I said that earlier. My apologies. So Peter was kept in prison by earnest prayer for him that was made to God by the church. Which means these types of things uh, will happen 
and of course have happened to Christians even in our day. Uh, and our first response, our best response, is prayer. And uh, we're going to need to uh, learn how to do that more and more as time goes on. So verse 6, Now when Herod was about to bring him, Peter, out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between the two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. I mean, Herod was not willing to make any mistakes or leave anything to chance. Four squads of soldiers, two soldiers, one on either side of Peter, bound with two chains, and sentries, lookouts, uh, before the door were guarding the prison. Uh, I think... Herod thought that the church was going to uh, maybe storm the prison or use force or violence. Uh, and so he had all, all of his people ready. But they had a more powerful weapon, which was mentioned in verse 5. They had prayer. They were praying to God for Peter. Uh, and the prayer was working because though Peter is under strict surveillance and though he's under uh, tight watch, He's sleeping between these two soldiers. I mean, just think about trying to sleep between two people on a bus or an airplane or something. It's near impossible. But here he is at such peace that even though he's in prison and he's surrounded by all these soldiers, he's fast to sleep, bound in chains. And behold, verse 7, and behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell he struck Peter on the side and woke him up. I mean, Peter was in such a deep sleep. An angel has to strike him and say, wake up. Fascinating. So he struck Peter on the side and woke him up, saying, get up quickly. And all the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he, the angel, said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what, he, uh, what was being done. Uh, he, sorry, he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was simply seeing a vision, maybe similar to the vision that he saw on the uh, roof of Simon the Tanner's house. He thought he was seeing a vision. Verse 10, uh, when they passed the first and second guard, they came to an iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. So again, they were expecting a show. They were going to make a meal out of this trial and execution. They were really going to make Peter pay for following Jesus and preaching the gospel. The angel um, here referred to should be an angel. Uh, as Christ was the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, an angel delivers Peter and the prayer of the church is ans answered. Uh, so what you, can, what you can do here faithfully is uh, think of this angel, an angel, as a theophany, or as a Christophany, rather, an, an appearance of Christ himself. 
many believe that Jesus himself um, was the angel or the messenger of God that uh, showed up and led Peter out of prison. Do not confuse this, however, with the idea that Jesus became an angel when he went back to heaven. That's not at all true. Uh, Jesus is in his glorified body in heaven, seated at the right hand of God the Father. Just as he went up from the Mount of Olives, so he is now, and so he will return. He didn't change into an angel when he got home. Um, but here, Dr. Luke is referring to this messenger, um, this one who comes to carry out um, God's work on earth. And so... Um, we can, we can consider, just like um, the fourth man in the fire uh, with the three Hebrew children or the person that was in the lion's den with Daniel as Christophanes, uh, like Old Testament appearances of Christ, so too we uh, may also consider this to be Jesus himself setting Peter free. Um, verse 12, let's read that together. Uh, when he realized this, Peter, when he realized that he uh, was rescued from the hand of Herod, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, uh, where many were gathered together and were praying. So remember the church was praying for Peter? Well, it looks like he went to the place where they were praying. The church met in homes in the first century. There was no church buildings, of course, at this time. Um, and note that the house in which they were meeting is Mary, Mary's house, the mother of Mark or John Mark. Uh, let's go now to verse 13. And when he knocked on the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. And so they said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and so they kept saying, it's an angel. It's just a figment of your imagination. It's just something you're seeing. Although the church prayed, their faith seemed to be small, um, they were praying, but it's obvious here that they didn't expect Peter to be released. They actually called the girl out of her mind for saying that Peter was out of prison and at the gate. They thought it was just an angel or maybe it was his spirit in the sense that maybe he'd already been executed and some type of apparition showed up. Uh, they couldn't believe that their prayers were actually answered. Now again, we're a dozen years after the, the day of Pentecost, so there's not a lot of experience. I mean, a lot has happened, but there's not a lot of experience for them to really believe that if they prayed, miraculous things could happen. They believed that when the apostles prayed or the apostles said, um, you know, rise up and walk, that it would happen. But they didn't quite have faith yet that even if they prayed, regular, ordinary people, when they prayed, that God heard and answered their prayer as well. And so the encouragement that that gives to us tonight is that now 
2,000 years later or so, we have a body of proof. We have evidence that when the people of God pray, God hears and answers prayer. And we can expect our prayers to be heard. We can expect them to be answered. Um, We shouldn't expect them to be answered our way. We should always expect them to be answered God's way. We can't put God under our expectations, but we can certainly expect that God will hear and answer prayer and come through just at the right moment, at the moment that gives him the most glory and honor. All right, so let's continue. Let's continue with this little um, insight here into Peter's release from prison and showing up at Mary's house. So verse 16, Peter kept on knocking. And when they finally opened the door, they saw him and were amazed. Uh, But mentioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. So here, um, Peter is saying that it was the Lord that brought him out. Uh, Earlier, he said, now I know that the Lord sent his angel. Now here he's saying it was actually the Lord. Now that I've had a second to realize what happened, it was the Lord who brought me out. Um, Yeah, okay. Motioning to be silent. Yeah, the Lord brought him out of prison, and he said, tell these things to James and to his brothers. So tell it to... um, James, not the James that has been killed up in verse 2. I'm thinking here, this is James, the half-brother of Jesus and his brothers. Uh, Then he departed and went to another place. Verse 18, now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had happened to Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. So here, Herod is completely humiliated. He wanted to humiliate Peter, wanted to put him on trial, wanted to trump up charges falsely accuse him. He wanted to condemn him to death, um, some type of public execution, probably a scourging beforehand, so that he could really gain favor with the Jewish people. And now here Herod himself is completely and uh, utterly embarrassed. Uh, He's so embarrassed that he actually put the sentries that were guarding Peter to death, and then he went down to Caesarea to sulk and to just kind of um, what's that word? Not, not exile himself, but like basically go into hiding. What's that word? I'll think of it later. Anyway, now he goes down there and he meets his bitter end. Let's read in verse 20. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, They asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. And on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes. He took his seat upon the throne and he delivered an oration to them. 
and the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not a man. And immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Wow. That's meeting a bitter end. Herod, like King Nebuchadnezzar of the Old Testament, king of Babylon, is exalted by his pride. Remember just a few verses before, he's totally embarrassed. And usually when our pride is hurt, uh, when we're embarrassed, typically people don't humble themselves. They, they get more proud. And that's exactly what Herod did after he licked his wounds for a while there in Caesarea. He put on his royal robes, took a seat upon his throne, and delivered a compelling speech. It must have been an amazing speech because uh, the people there said, this is the voice of a God. Interesting, they said of a God. So they didn't, they didn't equate his voice with Yahweh gods, just a God and not a man. But Jesus himself is the King of kings, Lord of lords. There is no God before him. Isaiah 43.10 says that before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. There is no other God. There is no competition. So to say that it's a voice of a God is still to uh, blaspheme the one and only God, Yahweh God. And so immediately an angel of the Lord strikes him down. Contrast this, and we'll, we'll do a little callback here. Contrast this with what happened to Ananias and Sapphira back in chapter 5. There's no direct mention there that God killed them. Just that after what happened, they dropped down dead. Now you can certainly make the assumption, but the text doesn't say it. And so where the text is silent, we should really be silent. But where the text speaks, we can certainly speak. And so here we can, we can uh, conclude that those who exalt themselves above God will be cast down. Uh, they cannot stand. That's why this word of God is our weapon that tears down strongholds and every lofty idea raised against the knowledge of God. And so God is preeminent. God is supreme. He will, um, he will not share his glory with anyone. And here Herod uh, seemed to exalt himself to that status. And so God said, okay, let me show you what you really are, which is nothing more than food for worms. And look at this, what, look what happens. The word of God increased and multiplied. Wow. God does this incredible thing, this, this really, what, I guess what some would perceive to be this really mean and vindictive thing. Um, and yet, in spite of it all, the word of God increases and is multiplied. Uh, was God being petulant here? Was he being childish? Was he being unreasonable or irrational? No. God is rightly judging 
the sin of, of, a, of a wicked man. Uh, the sin of a wicked man who, by all accounts, wanted to destroy the church and obviously had already killed one of Christ's apostles and was, was lined up to kill another one. And so God, as we will, uh, or as we, as we talked about on Sunday night uh, in the book of Nahum, God is, a, is an avenging God. He's a God of wrath. He's a God of pure and perfect justice. And so here I think we see God acting in his attribute of justice or acting on his attribute of justice. Uh, by his own sovereign will, he chooses to remove this wicked king from his throne. Now you'll, you'll read later on in Romans 13, for example, that God allows people to ascend to power and he's the one who removes them from power. He doesn't always remove them from power by striking them down and having them eaten by worms, but he allows them to ascend to power and he removes them from power. I won't go down that rabbit trail very far tonight other than to say I think that's exactly what we're seeing here in this text. God allowed Herod to be king and now he says your reign is over. Verse 25, and Barnabas and Saul, now remember this is um, Saul of Tarsus, his name's not yet changed, it's going to change soon. Barnabas and Saul, they returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service and bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. So just as a refresher, uh, Barnabas and Saul are pastoring the church in Antioch. Uh, Barnabas went down there, started the church. Um, remember, the, the church in Antioch was formed, and then, um, yeah, here it is in, in chapter 11. The church in Antioch was, was formed, and a report came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And so they sent Barnabas, and Barnabas shows up and said, Let us come together with steadfast purpose. He goes down there to become the pastor of the church, to unite them in purpose, to unite them in vision. He realizes, hey, this is going to be a big job. And he heard about this recent convert named Saul. And so he goes down and he, um, he gets Saul uh, from his hometown in Tarsus and brings him back to Antioch. And so they pastor the people there for a whole year, uh, chapter 11 says. And so now we're going back to that story of Barnabas and Saul. Um, Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they completed their service and bringing with them John. So in the midst of persecution and opposition, the church grows and prospers, and that's what always happens. It's not easy. It's not something we wish for. We don't wish for persecution. But we can know that when it happens, and it will, that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. That even in the midst of severe persecution and opposition, the church is strengthened, the church is built up, and the church grows and prospers. As the final surge of the gospel beyond the borders of Israel begins, Paul becomes the dominant leader and Peter disappears from the scene. So here is kind of the last time we're going to hear about 
Peter. Now, he'll be mentioned, and of course, he has two, two epistles near the back of the book. Um, but the book of Acts now is going to switch gears and really focus in on the story of Saul of Tarsus, who becomes the apostle Paul. So what I think we should do, though you don't have a handout, I think we should start into chapter 13, because chapter 13 is quite a bit longer than 12, and so we can get ahead on next week, and so we don't have so much to do next week. Let's just start into chapter 13. So I don't have any notes for you. I haven't done a whole lot of study on chapter 13, but we have the Holy Spirit here with us, and we're all students of the Word, so we should be able to make some sense out of what we're reading here. So again, we are at about 42 AD, or no, actually, we're at about 44 AD, so 14 years after Christ's ascension in Acts chapter 1. So we're about 14 years now when Herod Agrippa dies, and um, now here in Acts 13, we're skipping ahead a few years Paul's first missionary journey begins in A.D. 48. So again, 18 years now, almost 20 years, two decades. After Jesus ascends, we pick up in Acts chapter 13, verse 1. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers... Uh, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, um, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod, the, uh, whoa, the Tetrarch, and Saul. So these were the uh, prophets and teachers, the people that were telling forth the word of God and the people that were explaining what was told forth. Um, of course, we don't have any writings of these prophets, of Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius, Menaean, and, uh, and others. We certainly have the writings of Saul, who was one of the teachers. Saul wrote most of the rest of the New Testament, teaching the churches um, truth about Jesus Christ and truth about uh, how to live the Christian life. But here these prophets were, these were the, the preachers, the ones who were telling forth the word of God. And I'm sure at times they were foretelling the word of God as well. Uh, we read last week about a man who was called the prophet Agabus. He predicted that there would be a great famine in the land. I'm going to refer to Agabus a few times on Sunday morning because we're talking about the spiritual gift of prophecy. And so um, these prophets were either telling forth the word of God so they were preaching the gospel, or they were uh, telling the works and wonders of God, just like they were doing back in Acts chapter 2, and the Holy Spirit was poured out upon them, and they began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance, and the people that were gathered in Jerusalem from all over the world said, how is it we hear them in our own language and dialect? They're, they're not even just speaking our language, they're, they're using our accent and our slang and our dialect. That's how, that's how powerful this spiritual gift of tongues is, which we're also going to talk about Sunday morning. Uh, but they were prophesying the works and wonders of God in these languages. 
And so here these prophets in Antioch are proclaiming the word of God, possibly foretelling the word of God. And then there are teachers that are explaining what is being foretold. So two different gifts, very similar, the gift of prophecy and the gift of teaching. Uh, they go hand in hand. They're not the same, but they, are, uh, they rely on one another. Verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. So here we see, this is great. As I've been reading through this, I've been seeing the gifts of the Spirit and the spiritual disciplines in action in the book of Acts. And so when I say we're studying this because we want to relive it, and we are reliving it, whenever we practice the spiritual disciplines and, and practice the spiritual gifts, we're reliving the book of Acts. And so here we can see, in these first few verses, we can see that the gift of prophecy was in operation, the gift of teaching was in operation, and then here in verse 2, we can see um, that while they were worshiping, they were also practicing the spiritual discipline of fasting. And the Holy Spirit said, set apart uh, for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Okay, so here's what's amazing. Uh, Barnabas and Saul, remember, they're pastoring. They're pastoring the church in Antioch. They're, they're shepherding the flock there. And now in prayer and fasting, the Holy Spirit reveals to them, hey, I want you to set apart Barnabas and Saul for a different work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Now they're going to be missionary evangelists. They were pastors. They were shepherds, teachers. Now they're going to be missionary evangelists. So here again, this is the Holy Spirit um, distributing the gifts to whom he wills. And um, it's amazing how some people can be very proficient in a particular gift, and then the Holy Spirit can deliver to them or distribute to them, rather, another gift that seems completely opposite and, and different than the ones they operated in before. And so we can see here that a particular gifting is not resident in a person. The Holy Spirit is resident in that person, and he distributes the gifts as he wills. And so here we see Barnabas and Saul sent off as missionary evangelists. So again, they're going to do some of the same things. They're going to prophesy. They're going to preach. They're going to teach. Uh, we're going to see that they were involved in miraculous uh, things happening and healings happening. All that stuff's going to happen, but it's still a very different gift. The gifts and talents and skills that you need to pastor a congregation is way different than what you need to be a missionary evangelist, and yet it's the Holy Spirit himself that equips us for the work of the ministry, whatever it might be that he calls us to. And so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, Barnabas and Saul didn't decide this. The church didn't decide it. The Holy Spirit decided it while they were fasting and praying and seeking the Lord's will, seeking the Spirit's direction for their lives, I'm sure, the word came to them from the Spirit, and they obeyed. What a concept. The Spirit speaks to us, 
and we obey. And so being sent out by the Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived in Salamis, what did they do? They prophesied. They proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John to assist them. So remember John, who was also named Mark, who was Mary's son, where the church was praying for Peter in the previous chapter. Just connecting all those dots, trying to keep all those names straight. Okay, so they went down there, and they had John to be their assistant. And when they had gone through the whole island as far as uh, Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. Okay, so here's the first encounter we have with someone who's called a false prophet. Now remember, Saul and Barnabas show up, and they're prophesying. They're proclaiming the word of God in verse 4. But there's already someone there claiming to be a prophet. Uh, he's a magician, so he's working, um, he's working with counterfeit power. He's working under the power of Satan, which gives him the appearance of legitimacy. Uh, but he's a Jewish false prophet, and he's actually called himself Bar-Jesus, or Son of Jesus. And so they come upon this guy, uh, and he was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. Um, but Elimaeus, the magician, for this is the meaning of his name, opposed them seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, here we go, was also, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently in, at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Wow, there's a powerful rebuke. So remember I said he was calling himself son of Jesus, bar Jesus. And Peter says, oh, you're no son of Jesus. You're actually a son of the devil. And you are the enemy of all unrighteousness. And we know that the devil is full of deceit and villainy. The devil is the father of lies. With Satan, the lie is the point. There's never a time when he opens his mouth that he speaks truth. It is always a lie. And the lie is the point with Satan. Why is the lie the point? If truth sets us free, what do lies do? Put us in bondage. Satan wants us to be in bondage. So that's why everything out of his mouth is a lie. Uh, and so we know that Satan quotes Scripture, but he always misquotes it, which means he turns it into a lie. Is Scripture a lie? Absolutely not. Uh, it is the Word of God. It is the theonoustos, the, the exhale of God. It is infallible. It is inerrant. It is immutable. Um, but when it's misquoted, when it's twisted, when a few words are left out, when a couple words are changed... When something's added, when something's subtracted, 
it's nullified. It's not the word of God anymore. And that's what this magician, um, that's what he was doing. He was calling himself a prophet. He was performing false signs and wonders. But Paul knew exactly what he was. He was a son of the devil, full of unrighteousness, full of deceit, full of villainy, and he was constantly making crooked the straight path of the Lord. Remember, uh, the, the way that leads to life is straight and it is narrow. Few there be that find it. And so the way to life is straightforward. It's easy. Jesus said that his yoke was easy. His burden is light. If you're listening to preaching and teaching that makes the way crooked, that makes it difficult, that makes it confusing, that makes you have to jump through hoops or do some type of work, then you're listening to false teaching. Don't confuse that, however, with conviction, okay, or the, um, the rebuke of the Lord to to change something potentially in your life, to give something up, to put something down. You know, Paul himself said, put to death that which is earthly in you. There are things we do. But if it's putting you into bondage, if it's confusing you, if it's causing you pain, if it's causing you, um, you know, to lay awake at night and wonder... Am I going to make it if I died tonight or if Christ came back? Would I even make it? If you're questioning your salvation, if you have no assurance under that form of teaching, then you're listening to bad teaching. Verse 11, And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him. And he went about seeking people that would lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when they saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. And so here again, we see a sign gift. We see Paul pronouncing a judgment from the Lord upon someone, and immediately it happens. So here Paul says, um, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you will be blind, unable to see for a time. He says it and it happens because he is an apostle. He has the sign gifts resident in him. The sign gifts resident in, an, in a person ceased after the apostles died, but the sign gifts themselves have not ceased because they belong to the Holy Spirit. The apostles could use the sign gifts on command or on demand. When they said it, it would happen as a sign that proved their authority and their message. And that's exactly what happened here. He didn't do this vindictively. He said, you will be blind and what happened when, it ha when the man fell blind? The proconsul, whose name was mentioned earlier, let's see if we can find it, Sergius Paulus, he believed when he saw the sign, when he saw what had occurred. And then he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. 
So the signs always confirmed the authority of the apostle and their teaching and their message. Now, this is the sign. The book is the sign. It's the greatest sign. Do signs and wonders still accompany the preaching of this word? Absolutely they do. They have continued from Acts until now and will continue, I believe, until we no longer need them when, we, when Jesus returns, when the perfect comes. But that has not happened yet. And so these sign gifts, they still operate. They are resident in the Spirit who is resident in us and He distributes them as he wills, to whom and through whom he wills. And so I think with that, we'll uh, conclude our verse-by-verse study, and we'll pick up where we left off next week in Acts chapter 13, verse 13.